Chapter 19, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollection of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 19, Successful Management, Part 1. No one can imagine the amount of headwork and handwork which I performed during the first four weeks after Jenny Lynn's arrival. Anticipating much of this, I had spent some time in August at the White Mountains to recruit my energies. Of course, I had not been idle during the summer. I had put innumerable means and appliances into operation for the furtherance of my object, and little did the public see of the hand that indirectly pulled at their heartstrings, preparatory to a relaxation of their purse strings, and these means and appliances were continued and enlarged throughout the whole of that triumphal musical campaign. The first great assembly at Castle Garden was not gathered by Jenny Lynn's musical genius and powers alone. She was effectually introduced to the public before they had seen or heard her, she appeared in the presence of a jury already excited to enthusiasm in her behalf. She more than met their expectations, and all the means I had adopted to prepare the way were thus abundantly justified. As a manager, I worked by setting others to work. Biographies of the Swedish Nightingale were largely circulated. Foreign correspondents glorified her talents and triumphs by narratives of her benevolence, and printer's ink was invoked in every possible form, to put and keep Jenny Lynn before the people. I am happy to say that the press generally echoed the voice of her praise from first to last. I could fill many volumes with printed extracts, which are nearly all of a similar tenor to the following unbought, unsolicited editorial article, which appeared in the New York Herald of September 10, 1850, the day before the first concert given by Miss Lynn in the United States. Jenny Lind and the American People. What ancient monarch was he, either in history or in fable, who offered half his kingdom, the price of box tickets and choice seats in those days, for the invention of an original sensation, or the discovery of a fresh pleasure? That sensation, that pleasure which royal power in the old world failed to discover, has been called into existence at a less price by Mr. Barnum, a plain republican and is now about to be enjoyed by the sovereigns of the new world jenny lynn the most remarkable phenomenon in musical art which has for the last century flashed across the horizon of the old world is now among us and will make her debut tomorrow night to a house of nearly ten thousand listeners yielding in proceeds by auction a sum of forty or fifty thousand dollars for the last ten days our musical reporters have furnished our readers with every matter connected with her arrival in this metropolis and the steps adopted by mr barnum in preparation for her first appearance the proceedings of yesterday consisting of the sale of the remainder of the tickets and the astonishing the wonderful sensation produced at her first rehearsal on the few persons critics in musical art who were admitted on the occasion will be found elsewhere in our columns. 
we concur in everything that has been said by our musical reporter describing her extraordinary genius her unrivaled combination of power and art nothing has been exaggerated not an iota three years ago more or less we heard Jenny Lynn on many occasions when she made the first great sensation in Europe by her debut at the London Opera House. Then she was great, in power, in art, in genius. Now she is greater in all. We speak from experience and conviction. Then she astonished and pleased and fascinated the thousands of the British aristocracy. Now she will fascinate and please and delight and almost make mad with musical excitement the millions of the american democracy tomorrow night this new sensation this fresh movement this excitement excelling all former excitements will be called into existence when she pours out the notes of casta diva and exhibits her astonishing powers her wonderful peculiarities that seem more of heaven than of earth more of a voice from eternity than from the lips of a human being. We speak soberly, seriously, calmly. The public expectation has run very high for the last week, higher than at any former period of our past musical annals. But high as it has risen, the reality, the fact, the concert, the voice and power of Jenny Lynn will far surpass all expectations. Jenny Lynn is a wonder and a prodigy in song, and no mistake. As usual, however, the Herald very soon took it all back and roundly abused Miss Lynn and persistently attacked her manager. As usual, too, the public paid no attention to the Herald and doubled their patronage of the Jenny Lynn concerts. After the first month, the business became thoroughly systemized, and by the help of such agents as my faithful treasurer, Elsie Stewart, and the indefatigable Legrand Smith, my personal labors were materially relieved. But from the first concert on the 11th of September, 1850, until the 93rd concert on the 9th of June, 1851, a space of nine months, I did not know a waking moment that was entirely free from anxiety. I could not hope to be exempted from trouble and perplexity in managing an enterprise which depended altogether on popular favor and which involved great consequences to myself, but I did not expect the numerous petty annoyances which beset me, especially in the early period of the concerts. Miss Lynn did not dream, nor did anyone else, of the unparalleled enthusiasm that would greet her, and the first immense assembly at Castle Garden somewhat prepared her, I suspect, to listen to evil advisers. It would seem that the terms of our revised contract were sufficiently liberal to her and sufficiently hazardous to myself to justify the expectation of perfectly honorable treatment, but certain envious intermeddlers appeared to think differently. Do you not see, Miss Lynde, that Mr. Barnum is coining money out of your genius? said they. Of course she saw it, but the high-minded Swede despised and spurned the advisers who recommended her to repudiate her contract with me at all hazards and take the enterprise into her own hands, possibly to put it into theirs. I, however, suffered much from the unreasonable interference of her lawyer, Mr. John Jay. Benedict and Bellatini behaved like men, 
and Jenny afterwards expressed to me her regret that she had for a moment listened to the vexatious exactions of her legal counselor. To show the difficulties with which I had to contend thus early in my enterprise, I copy a letter which I wrote, a little more than one month after Miss Lynn commenced her engagements with me, to my friend Mr. Joshua Bates, of Messrs. Baring Brothers and Company, London. New York, October 23, 1850. Joshua Bates, Esquire. Dear Sir, I take the liberty to write you a few lines merely to say that we are getting along as well as could reasonably be expected. In this country you are aware that the rapid accumulation of wealth always creates much envy, and envy soon augments to malice. Such are the elements at work to a limited degree against myself, and although Miss Lind, Benedict, and myself have never, as yet, had the slightest feelings between us, to my knowledge, except those of friendship, yet I cannot well see how this can long continue in face of the fact that, nearly every day, they allow persons, some moving in first classes of society, to approach them and spend hours in traducing me. Even her attorney, Mr. John Jay, has been so blind to her interests as to aid in poisoning her mind against me by pouring into her ears the most silly twaddle, all of which amounts to nothing and less than nothing. Such is the regret that I was a showman, exhibitor of Tom Thumb, etc., etc. Without the elements which I possess for business, as well as my knowledge of human nature, acquired in catering for the public, the result of her concerts here would not have been pecuniarily one-half as much as at present, and such men as the Honorable Edward Everett, Gigi Howland, and others will tell you that there is no charlatanism or lack of dignity in my management of these concerts. I know as well as any person that the merits of Jenny Lynn are the best capital to depend upon to secure public favor, and I have thus far acted on this knowledge. Everything which money and attention can procure for their comfort, they have, and I am glad to know that they are satisfied on the score. All I fear is that these continual backbitings, if listened to by her, will, by and by, produce a feeling of distrust or regret, which will lead to unpleasant results. The fact is, her mind ought to be as free as air, and she herself as free as a bird, and, being satisfied of my probity and ability, she should turn a deaf ear to all envious and malevolent attacks on me. I have hoped that by thus briefly stating to you the facts in the case, you might be induced for her interests as well as mine to drop a line of advice to Mr. Benedict and another to Mr. J. on this subject. If I am asking or expecting too much, I pray you to not give it a thought, for I feel myself fully able to carry through my rights alone, although I should deplore nothing so much as to be obliged to do so in a feeling of unfriendliness. I have risked much money on the issue of this speculation. It has proved successful. I am full of perplexity and anxiety, and labor continually for success, and I cannot allow ignorance or envy to rob me of the fruits of my enterprise. Sincerely and gratefully yours, P.T. Barnum. It is not my purpose to enter into full details of all of the Lynn concerts, 
though I have given elsewhere a transcript from the account books of my treasurer, presenting a table of the place and exact receipts of each concert. This will gratify curiosity and at the same time indicate our route of travel. Meanwhile, I devote a few pages of interesting incidents connected with Miss Lynn's visit to America. Jenny Lynn's character for benevolence became so generally known that her door was beset by persons asking charity, and she was in the receipt, while in the principal cities of numerous letters, all on the same subject. Her secretary examined and responded favorably to some of them. He undertook at first to answer them all, but finally abandoned that course in despair. I knew of many instances in which she gave sums of money to applicants varying in amount from $20, $50, $500 to $1,000, and in one instance she gave $5,000 to a Swedish friend. One night, while giving a concert in Boston, a girl approached the ticket office and laying down $3 for a ticket remarked, there goes half a month's earnings, but I am determined to hear Jenny Lynn. Miss Lynn's secretary heard the remark, and a few minutes afterwards, coming into her room, he laughingly related the circumstance. Would you know the girl again? asked Jenny, with an earnest look. Upon receiving an affirmative reply, she instantly placed a twenty-dollar gold piece in his hand and said, Poor girl, give her that with my best compliments. He at once found the girl who cried with joy when she received the gold piece and heard the kind words with which the gift was accompanied. The night after Jenny's arrival in Boston, a display of fireworks was given in her honor in front of the Revere House, after which followed a beautiful torchlight procession by the Germans of that city. On her return from Boston to New York, Jenny, her companions, and Messrs. Benedict and Belletti stopped at Iranistan, my residence in Bridgeport, where they remained until the following day. The morning after her arrival, she took my arm and proposed a promenade through the grounds. She seemed much pleased and said, I am astonished that you should have left such a beautiful place for the sake of traveling through the country with me. The same day she told me in a playful mood that she had heard a most extraordinary report. I have heard that you and I are about to be married, said she. Now how could such an absurd report ever have originated? Probably from the fact that we are engaged, I replied. She enjoyed a joke and laughed heartily. Do you know, Mr. Barnum, said she, that if you had not built Iranistan, I should never have come to America for you? I expressed my surprise and asked her to explain. I had received several applications to visit the United States, she continued, but I did not much like the appearance of the applicants, nor did I relish the idea of crossing 3,000 miles of ocean, so I declined them all. But the first letter which Mr. Wilton, your agent, addressed me, was written upon a sheet headed with a beautiful engraving of Iranistan. It attracted my attention. I said to myself, a gentleman who has been so successful in his business as to be able to build and reside in such a palace cannot be a mere adventurer. So I wrote to your agent and consented to an interview, which I should have declined if I had not seen the picture of Iranistan. That, then, fully pays me for building it, I replied. 
for I intend and expect to make more by this musical enterprise than Iranistan cost me. I really hope so, she replied, but you must not be too sanguine. You know, man proposes, but God disposes. Jenny Lind always desired to reach a place in which she was to sing, without having the time of her arrival known, thus avoiding the excitement of promiscuous crowds. As a manager, however, I knew that the interests of the enterprise depended in a great degree upon these excitements. Although it frequently seemed inconceivable to her how so many thousands should have discovered her secret and consequently gathered together to receive her, I was not so much astonished inasmuch as my agent always had early telegraphic intelligence of the time of her anticipated arrival and was not slow in communicating the information to the public. On reaching Philadelphia, a large concourse of persons awaited the approach of the steamer which conveyed her. With difficulty, we pressed through the crowd and were followed by many thousands to Jones Hotel. The street in front of the building was densely packed by the populace, and poor Jenny, who was suffering from a severe headache, retired to her apartments. I tried to induce the crowd to disperse, but they declared they would not do so until Jenny Lynn should appear on the balcony. I would not disturb her, and knowing that the tumult might prove an annoyance to her, I placed her bonnet and shawl upon her companion, Miss Amundsen, and led her out on the balcony. She bowed gracefully to the multitude who gave her three hearty cheers and quietly dispersed. Miss Lynn was so utterly averse to anything like deception that we never ventured to tell her the part which her bonnet and shawl had played in the absence of their owner. Jenny was in the habit of attending church whenever she could do so without attracting notice. She always preserved her nationality also by inquiring out and attending Swedish churches wherever they could be found. She gave $1,000 to a Swedish church in Chicago. While in Boston, a poor Swedish girl, a domestic in a family at Roxbury, called on Jenny. She detained her visitor several hours, talking about home and other matters, and in the evening took her in her carriage to the concert, gave her a seat, and sent her back to Roxbury in a carriage at the close of their performances. I have no doubt the poor girl carried with her substantial evidences of her countrywoman's bounty. End of chapter 19, part 1, recorded by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.